people are interested in people. Welcome to Clock or Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. So today we're going to talk about the indie freestyle disc championships that are coming up this weekend. But before that, let's get a nail update from James. Okay, so as many of you are aware, Ryan and I are both deep into nail making ventures, and we both adopted different techniques. And I needed to make some molds for future nails. And so I sent out a survey to get some input from the community. And there's a few things I did right, and there's a few things I did wrong. So one, I just used SurveyMonkey, and I didn't bother to pay for it. And so I got more survey results than I'm allowed to see, so I only have the first 40. (laughs) And the other thing I did wrong is I put it out there, I got like 20 responses, it slowed down, and I kind of figured I wasn't going to get any more. And so (laughs) I just went ahead and started making molds, and I bought a bunch of supplies, And then the rule of small sample sizes kicked in and all the results rapidly shifted towards different outcomes in the second batch of 20 votes I got. So I made a few mistakes there. But here's basically what I learned. One, people own very few nails. So it looks like half of people have less than 10 nails, which is incredible to me. I think I have. (laughs) I mean, now I have hundreds of nails, but even before I was making them, I think I always had 50 to 100 nails at any given time. What about you, Ryan? I think you're an outlier. I'm like in the 10 to 20 range. I think I have a natural tendency to fear for the future. And I was always worried about not having a source of nails. So for instance, I think when I knew that Matt Gothier was leaving the nail making game, I think I bought like $400 worth of nails from him. And he was just like (laughs) looking at me like, what are you doing? It's like, I'll take all of your nails. But five seems too low. You can't have only five nails, right? I know world championship or world champions that have two nails. <laughs> other than Daniel O'Neill? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Maybe he's an outlier the other direction. Okay. So that's who you were thinking of? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Daniel, he's living nail to nail, man. He's He's a nail check to nail check kind of person. And half the time he's just using buttons, but he doesn't even need them. He doesn't even need them. Um, So the next question is one where things kind of went wrong. So I asked whether people like their nails thick or thin. And the first 20 responses were thin. And I didn't get a single thick response. And so I thought, oh, wow, like everyone really likes thin nails. And I started making molds for thin nails, which basically meant I took all these perfect, beautiful nails I had carved and just slashed the top couple millimeters off it. (laughs) And I felt really guilty about it. And then the next 20 were thick. So we ended up about 50-50 on thin or thick. (laughs) And so that was kind of a waste. But I'm going to come back to that because I have a question for you about that. On how flat do you prefer your nails to be? Basically, everyone said a little bit of curve. This is a hard question to ask because I wasn't sure how to describe it in a way that people would have consistent expectations of what the different words meant. But I described a little bit of curve as close to a crescent moon and 77.5% of people preferred that. And then everybody else preferred moderate curvature. So no one wanted it to be flat and no one wanted it to be very curved. And I was a little surprised because I feel like people tell me they want flat nails sometimes. And I see people who have really flat looking nails, but apparently nobody wanted a perfectly flat nail. Next one, I asked about nail opacity preferences, whether you want your nail translucent or solid colored. And I expected translucent to do really well here Mm because I only use translucent nails. And that's what I I, voted for. (laughs) 
I always thought translucent was pretty cool, but 60% of people, I guess it's not a huge majority, but 60% of people went for solid colored, which is a little bit personally devastating to me because I had to buy a lot of solid colored nail making, nail making tools. On how long do you prefer your nails? I expected this to be a little bit more divisive, but 67% of people said they wanted their nails to be nail length, like the na- length of their fingernail. And 12% said they liked it to be more like a circle, like a short squat circle. And 20% of people said they wanted a longer nail that was even longer than their fingernail. That makes sense to me personally. I also like my nails nail length. And I kind of have a theory that the closer I can get my nail to my natural fingernail, the more intuitive it will be for my brain to know how to manipulate my fingers with the fake nail on to do frisbee moves. But um, I feel like when I see people, I see tons of people who use really <laughs> long nails or maybe I'm overexposed to Daniel, but he's basically using like circular buttons. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of like, ah, I'm surprised more people didn't like that. Um, this one I'm very upset about. What kind of edge do you prefer on your nail? Squarish, square-ish edge, like a Matt Gothier nail or a round edge like most other nails? And I'm curious if people aren't familiar with the squarest edge, so they didn't know what I was talking about and they were picturing a square. But squarish squarish edge got 27.5% of the votes and round edge got 72.5% of the votes. Does that surprise you? That does surprise me. I think most people haven't used the matte nail. That's that's what it tells me. Because I do think when I... I think the story of my nail preferences is... I started out with the majority views on all this, all these survey questions, and I moved towards the other view. So I used to only wear round edge nails. And then once I was exposed to Matt's nails, I've since only used the squarish edge nails. I don't know why I have so much trouble with the word squarish. And I think it kind of fits in my theory about I want my nails to look like my actual nails. I want my fake nails to look like my fingernails. And your fingernails are kind of squarish. I probably should have said on the question, squarish edge like your fingernail is versus like a round edge where it's more circular than I think is natural for a human fingernail. But I get that people's fingernails are different. So who knows? Yeah. Okay, next question. We'll have like a whole, yeah, a whole nail section segment. But I feel like most people don't know what the best nail is. Like, I don't think either of us know that either. Well, I'm so glad you say that because I did. I want to ask you about that in a second. So the last question of my survey was, what are your favorite nail colors? And I found this very amusing, completely random. Basically, everything got (laughs) between 18 and 22%. So people have no strong preferences. But here was also one where small sample sizes kicked in. So the survey started out. And my favorite nail color, clear, just got hammered and had no votes. And the first 15 votes for for hot pink. And I was like, wow, okay, people <laughs> really like hot pink. This is it's a huge outlier how much people like hot pink. But once we got up to 40, everything balanced out. And the only the only nail color that was not popular and is an outlier was black, which I thought was a little bit interesting because I thought a black nail would be kind of cool, but nobody nobody was into that. So in more context for why I'm doing this, and this leads to what we're going to talk about briefly before we get to the IFTC, is the economics of nail making. So I'm using a traditional dental acrylic technique, and Ryan is using a 3D printing technique. We didn't plan that out. It just sort of happened that we both started making nails. And I learned my techniques from Dan Yarnell, and then Matt Gothier has been really helpful, which, by the way, is super cool that 
you know, people are really open about sharing how to do this. I think anyone who makes nails, at least in the US, understands that it's not an economic enterprise. It is a huge waste of time and money because it takes way more time and way more money than you'll ever get back selling them. It's really, I think people should be aware of the Dan Yarnells and the Matt Gothers of the world are really doing the charity by making nails because it's not worth it to them, I promise you. Um, and I don't know if people have better techniques in Europe that make it more economic, but here it doesn't make a lot of sense. But I was doing the survey because I needed to buy more supplies and I wanted to know what colors should I get because there's different base material types and they cost wildly different amounts depending on color and opacity and things like that. And so I wanted to figure out what people wanted before I bought a bunch of stuff that nobody liked. But here's my main question for you, which is, should I care about the survey results because they reflect people's stated preferences? Or should I make the nails that I think are the best nails and make people realize that they are the best nail? No, you should make the nail that is the best. It's a captured market. So you can, like people are going to buy whatever you make. So you might as well make the best product. I sort of figured you'd say that just based on what I know about you. And I tend to agree. So I think I am making mostly squarish nails and not rounded nails. And I hope that like me, people will realize that they seem a little better. But one of the more controversial ones, and I've been debating this with my new freestylers, is thin versus thick. And I think when I started out playing, I thought, like a lot of people, I want the thinnest nails possible, the less surface area, the less friction, the faster the disc, the more moves I can do. But I came around, like many things, on the advice of Matt Gothier that thick nails, and I think Jake, Jake Gothier talked to me about this a lot, the thicker nail has such an advantage and stability that it far overcomes the loss from increased friction. So like, even though in theory, if you're doing a rim move, maybe the thick nail is going to kill the spin faster because it has increased surface area, the stability you get when you're doing control-based moves is far more valuable. What do you think of that? I think, I think if we measured it in the real world, the thick nail would be faster than the thin nail. So Really? So there's data, I mean, like bike science or like road bike science has come a long way just recently. And do you know a wider bike tire is faster than a thin bike tire in the real world? I think you told me that, but do they know why that is? It, so it doesn't have an exact analogy to nails, but it's because the pressure of the road is spread out wider. And apparently that has faster rolling resistance. I don't actually know like the actual physics of it. Well, see, I, I wouldn't shock me at all if something similar applied to nails because, and this is, again, an imperfect analogy, just like the bike, but think about the difference between doing a claw delay and doing a single finger delay. Maybe the claw delay kills more spin at the beginning, but there's a certain point where the claw delay far outpaces the mm. single nail delay in terms of maintaining spin. So I think my hypothesis for why a thicker nail or having more points of contact with the disc would help rather than hurt despite the increased surface area would be something like the way you're distributing the weight or like having more having the weight spread out more evenly like the disc's weight is being spread out more evenly on one nail or five nails i think that somehow makes up for the fact that there's increased surface area 
Um, this also leads to a podcast segment I want to do in the future, which is what are we wrong about? So if you if you think about how we look back at baseball in the 1800s or basketball even 20 years ago, and you're like, wow, like how did they not understand that <laughs> three points is worth more than two? Take three pointers. I I can imagine the sport evolving and people being like, wow, what's so amazing about Ryan is he was so good, and yet he was using an acrylic nail or like whatever it is. <laughs> like like they were using silicone. Those like barbarians so like there's got to be lots of things that we're so wrong about but we just do them because we're guessing and we don't really know any better so i i don't think i really know what the best nail is but i think i've evolved to a different view based on my personal experience from using nails um okay but last thing i want to talk real economics like dollar pounds so if you're listening to this in 10 years none of this is going to apply anymore but here's the kind of money i've already had to spend making nails and i will never recoup this so I needed a food. So if you make a dental acrylic nail, basically what you do is you take something called a polymer, which is like acrylic dust, essentially. And then you have a monomer, which is some chemical that looks like water. And basically you take the polymer, you mix it with the monomer, and then it cures, it hardens, and then you have dental acrylic. But there's a few twists to it. So one, if you just mix the two chemicals together, they will probably you'll probably end up with a material that has a lot of, I don't know if I can say this word correctly. I only ever read it like porosity, like it's very porous. So it's kind of bubbly and it's not very hard. And those bubbles are usually air gaps that make the plane surface basically a serrated edge. So it's <laughs> it's not very usable. So you need some way to push in the material so that it becomes a solid surface that's, you know, you can polish. And to do that, you need pressure, which means to make a dental acrylic nail, you also need a pressure pot to push the monomer and the polymer together really hard to make a proper nail. So the pressure pot to start off with, and I have the tiniest, cheapest analog wand. It doesn't plug into anything. It is truly like I use my arm power to create (laughs) the pressure on it, essentially. It was $300 to $400. Then... You also need to make the molds to make the nails, right? So you can't just mix the monomer and polymer together. That's going to be a liquid. It has to go into a mold. So to make the molds, I buy silicone putty, which you can get like a craft store. And you just mix the two parts of putty together. You have like an A part and a B part. And when you mix it together, there's a chemical reaction that causes the putty to solidify. But in the meantime, before it solidifies, you have a 30-minute window to make your mold. So you take some nails you already have, which means if you don't have nails to start with, you have to actually carve the nails yourself, which I did. So I carved a bunch of nails. Each nail probably took an hour to carve from just a block to get them as perfect as possible. Stick them into this putty to create my mold, wait for it to harden. Each thing of putty I get costs like 20 to $30, but I can make you know a mold for 50 nails or so. But as I've learned, I've made lots of molds and been refining my techniques to make my molds more effective, which I'll come back to. And then let's say the polymer costs $50 and the monomer costs $50. And I could probably make a few hundred nails from that polymer. Um, But if you want to make different colors, then I get to have all the different... Each polymer has to be the different colored. Each monomer has to be the different colored. So to be able to make like 10 colored nails... You have to spend, in my case, I just spent like six or seven hundred dollars on monomer and polymer to make nails. So 
I'm in at least a thousand dollars to make nails. And if you think I will ever sell a thousand dollars worth of nails, you're wrong. Probably because I intend this to be a giveaway. And most people will probably get the nails for free, at least in my home community. And then I hope to sell them for basically a dollar each, just so that there's some limit on people getting them. And so I can recoup some of my cost. But here's the other thing. For every nail I make right now that I think is usable or like a really good nail, I probably waste five or six that are failures. And I'm getting better at it. I've been doing a lot of refining, but there's been so much work and so much wasted materials trying to figure out how to make the nail right. But for instance, one thing I learned recently, which you were the inspiration for from your printmaking, is that you would hope that once you have your mold, you could pour the monomer in, pour the polymer in, mix it up, put it in the pressure pot, and out would come a beautiful, perfect nail that's ready to go. But of course, that is not the case. What you what comes out is something <laughs> that looks like the nail, but there's a lot of, I think it's called slag around the edges, where there's like lots of like messed up parts that didn't quite work right. And there's it's essentially unavoidable unless you have a three-dimensional mold that can cover the whole thing, which I definitely don't have the technology for, but that would create its own problems. So you take this thing out and then I have to do a pretty significant amount of labor to take what comes out of the mold and turn it into a nail. I have to carve out all the slag with a Dremel, which is like a drill. Then I have to polish. Well, then I have to do like a polishing grinding stone to take my really rough grind and smooth it down a little bit. Then I have to take it onto like a polishing compound and then I have to get the polishing compound off and then I have to clean the nail. So each nail has like a five or six step process to take it just from the mold out into the real world. And ah, I have more money, more money I spent. I had to buy a buffing tool, which is $100 <laughs> and the polishing compound, which was like $10 each. And now I need a shield for the buffing bench. And I need pumice, which is going to be my next technology that I try that should speed up the process. But my goal is to be able to make a nail within two or three minutes. And right now, I think at best, I can make a nail in 10 minutes. And I'm trying to make a thousand nails. So 10 minutes is not going to cut it. So I have to figure out a way to make them faster. But I took your idea, which is my original molds. I did a very dumb thing that normal humans do that Ryan would never do. Which is I had my silicone putty. It looks like Play-Doh. And I just took my nail right side up and I just shoved it into the silicone putty and let it harden. But the problem with that is once I would take my mold, once I would take my newly molded nail out of the silicone putty, the part that needed the most carving work was the part of the nail that you cared about, which meant I had to be a lot more careful about how I carved it. So I took your advice from 3D printing and I flipped it upside down. So I put the nail in upside down into the mold so that when I take it out, the part that I have to carve to fix is the bottom of the nail, which can obviously be rougher. In fact, it probably should be rougher because you want the extra surface area from the roughness <laughs> for the glue. So anyways, I've talked way too long about nails. <laughs> Innovation. But, yeah. but I mostly want to point out that it's really hard to make nails. So go thank your nail maker out there. It's something like in real time that we are figuring out how to do better. It's amazing that after... 50 years, we don't have a better way to do this, but you're trying to do a better way. You're doing 3D printing, but 3D printing has its own problems. And you were telling me before we started this podcast that 3D printing has also turned out to be way more expensive than you expected. Exactly. Yeah. So like my economics is, so the 3D printer, I have a cheap beginner one that's $300. I mean, they go up to like hundreds of thousands of dollars, but what I 
thought in the beginning was I was going to buy this roll of plastic and I was going to make an infinite amount of nails and it was going to cost me basically nothing per nail. But each roll, which are one kilogram of PLA, which is like the standard 3D printing plastic, is $25. Yeah. And I can only print about 2,000 nails. That's like if everything goes like perfect from one of those rolls, which is, I don't know, that's like, that's a lot that, of nails. That's <laughs> so many nails though. But it's not like free. Like I couldn't give away a thousand nails every day. Like that, like I'd have to start a GoFundMe before I could do something like that. True. But a thousand nails would supply the Durham freestyle scene for the next 10 years, probably. Although maybe not because new players lose lots of nails. But you have another problem with your nail, which is that it's really great as a disposable nail, but it's probably not a nail that pro freestylers are wanting to use because the 3D printing process creates ridges. So the nail has a lot of little ridges on it that probably pro freestylers won't yep. like very much. Yeah, one of, if the, you were to, no, go yeah ahead. one of the goals is I want no post-processing after I print. Like the, most of the work for you is after the, after the mold, right? Exactly. So after the printing finishes, I don't want to do any work. So that was like a big goal of mine. And I think I'm at a place where it's usable, but it can be significantly improved if someone were to sand it after, but I don't want to do any of that sand. Yeah. And I thought about this a little bit with my process of there would be a lot of value for me to be able to give people nails that are 90% done and say, it's almost like a fun thing, like breaking in your baseball glove. When you get this nail, <laughs> here's what you need to do. You need to take it and you just need to rub it in your shirt for 10 minutes, not 10 minutes, but like a minute to just get off that last little bit of whatever and smooth it out. But I don't know if that makes sense. But like for you, I think it would make sense, which is that for most people, you're giving those nails away to new players that they're going to lose five of them the first day. And it doesn't matter to them that it has ridges. It's good enough to learn a few basic moves. But if intermediate or pro players do want to use it, you say, here it is. It has ridges. Sand it down if you want. And it's probably going to be just as good as an acrylic nail. But I, I mean, I feel bad. I kind of said this before. I'm kind of trying to put everyone out of business in the nail making world because I want nails to be basically something you don't even think about. I think everyone should have 50 nails in their bag so that if anyone comes up, they can give away nails to them. Now, I'm probably a holdout on being a little bit slower to give new players nails than most people because I've kind of adhered to this old school mindset if you should learn that you should learn the delay without nails. But, and I think part of why I had that view, and this is very dated, and it's not my view personally, it's just the time I grew up in and the place I grew up in, I always thought that nails would turn off new players. Like this idea that you have to glue something to your finger to be able to freestyle. And especially in Texas and even 2010, it wasn't like the coolest thing to be gluing nails under your finger. <laughs> but I found that like, thankfully, the new generation of players I have here, they're all like, put, put, put the nails on right now. Like we want the nails immediately. I actually see a bunch of my players are already painting their nails anyways. So it's like, it's, it's an easy sell to be like, hey, put these on. It'll make it a lot easier for you to do stuff. And I know people like Jake Gauthier are big advocates for just let people wear nails because even if they can't delay it yet, they can do the rim delay and they can start doing moves and they can experience the fun of freestyle before they have a lot of skills. And I think he's really right about that, especially if nails aren't the turnoff that they might have been before to new players who'd never heard of the sport. But then the problem is people are very precious about their nails because not only... Not only are they expensive, 
but it's hard to have a good source for them. So my concern was never the money. Like, thankfully, like we live in the US, so we have really incredible privilege and economic benefits from that. Um, but I know for a lot of people, the nails are really expensive. But even though for us, money was not the concern, supply was. Like even when Matt Gauthier was at his nail making peak, he could not make enough nails to sustain the United States jam community or me personally. I, he never had enough of the nails that I wanted. And Dan Yarnell too. Like I don't see him enough to make nails. And I always feel bad asking people for nails because I know it's a huge burden on them. Like asking Dan Yarnell to make me 50 nails, even if I'm paying him for it, is like asking him to do work at below minimum wage. <laughs> so <laughs> I never wanted to do that. But hopefully you and I can figure out the way to make nails at least not such a burden to make and so that people can give them out freely. How boring is this? Is everyone's like, I can't believe they just talked about nails for 20 minutes. No, I think it was good insight. It's like interesting because no, most people haven't tried to make nails. And like those are things you can only learn by making your nail. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell one last story and then we'll go to the IFTC, which is really what the podcast is about. I've long had a fascination with making nails. Again, I think I have this instinct to be always worried about the future. And I knew I was joining a small sport and I was worried I wouldn't have a supplier to make nails in the future. So I invested really early in trying to make acrylic nails. And I've the pressure pot that I'm using now, I actually had in college in 2010 when I first started making nails. But here's what happened in 2010. I bought all the supplies. I had the pressure pot. I was living in a dorm room that was 90 square feet. And I opened up the monomer. I opened up the polymer and immediately people were banging on my door. The RA, like the resident supervisor or whatever, was like, what are you doing in there? Are you making meth? Like, do you need help? Because the chemical smells that come from these materials <laughs> are extremely noxious. And so I, I immediately, as soon as I did that, I just had to close the caps on both of those, put them away and say, I cannot make nails because they smell too bad. And the only reason I'm making nails now, 12 years later, is because I have a house. And so I have room to make this disgusting smelling nails in a way that is not going to bother anybody else. But that's my last nail making tidbit. Okay, so IFDC, tell me about it. Okay, so I think I want to do this in two parts. First, we'll do what the viewer should expect. So we'll do details. And then after that, I want to go over like our experiences. So like from the production side. Okay. So IFDC is happening this weekend, I believe. We're going to hopefully release this podcast episode on Monday. Not this weekend, Ryan, but the weekend after this weekend. No, because I'm going to release this episode on right before. Oh, I get it. You're smart. Yeah, we're recording ahead of time. Thank you. So this weekend, December 3rd and 4th, we have two divisions, Juniors, which is under 18, and Challengers on Sunday. So it's taking place at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is noon on the East Coast in the U.S. And in Central Europe, it's at 1800, I believe. That's what my Googling tells me. So okay. you can watch it on Frisbee Guru or Twitch or Facebook. I think the stream goes to a bunch of different places as well. Cool. See? It also looks like there's a link, ifdc.tv, that works. Yes. So if you want to follow along with your battle pass and get points and make predictions and see the leaderboard in real time, you can go to ifdc.tv and sign up for a free battle pass. Can we talk about the battle pass more? Because I think a lot of people don't know about it. And I think it's one of the coolest parts of the IFDC 
and people just need to know what it's about and how fun it is. Yeah, so it was inspired by the video game we talk about, Dota 2. They were the ones that invented it. But it's like when you go to a sporting event and you get that little pamphlet and it has like, you can follow along with the game and it has all the players' names in it and things like that. It's that, but for our freestyle event. And so there's a few things that we set up for it. And the most important one is the bracket. So you can see all the players and who they're playing against and you can see their path to victory. And in each match, you can pick the winners and it will generate like a prediction and percentages for everybody. And as the results come in, it will remember what you picked and it will give you points if you pick correctly. So as you're watching in real time, you can set your picks for each match and then get rewarded for it. So it's basically like no stakes betting, right? So you get points, exactly. there's, there's no money involved, just just pride and respect. But it's kind of like your fantasy bracket for you know the World Cup. So you can see that Rodell is up against Will in the first battle, this is old, but, and you could say, I think Will is going to win. And so if you are correct and Will does win, you get points for that. But another thing that's really cool about the battle pass is that if lots of people use it, it basically generates real time odds for who's going to win that match. So if everybody picks Will, then he might have a percentage probability of 90%. Now that doesn't mean it's actually a 90% chance he wins. It just means that (laughs) people, 90% of people think he's going to win which might have some meaning, but it definitely makes it fun to interact with the competition through the battle pass. So you're not just watching it passively, but you feel like a participant in it. And it also makes the experience of the event better because it helps me and Daniel because it's something that's fun for us to talk about, to see how the odds are changing in real time as people vote on who they think is going to win. So definitely check it out. It's at ifdc.tv. You can just create a quick account, right, Ryan? I don't even think you need an email. You can just put in a username and a password and then you can start picking teams and get the respect of having the best bracket, right? I think you need an email because it does like email password recovery. Got it. Because I do use, yeah, Amazon as the back end. You do need to to give it your email, but... I'm, I know Ryan, he's not going to spam you. You'll never hear from him. You'll, even if you're talking to him, you'll never hear from him. So don't worry about giving up your email. It's safe with Ryan, but it's a really cool experience. So ifdctv.com. IF for Indie Freestyle Disc Championship.tv. So ifdc.tv. Check it out. It's going to be super cool. All right. So should we look at our competitors now, Ryan? Yes. So the first day we're doing juniors and it looks like we have nine juniors signed up so far and all the finalists from last year are competing this year awesome now i'm going to be frank it's a little harder for me to remember all the juniors and who they were but i do recognize some big names here that were super exciting last time like emma joya felix dinon i remember he was a big fan favorite Mm -hmm. Is there anyone here that you think is a favorite to win the challenger division? Or sorry, the junior division? I'm going to have to go with Emma Faint defending. I think that's a really smart choice. I think if you had asked me first, I probably would have picked Emma. But absent Emma, I would pick Joya. So let me tell you what I remember about Joya, and you can tell me what you remember about Emma. So Joya is a player from Switzerland. She's being trained by Reto Zimmerman, a many-time world champion. And she and her sister, frankly, are both electric players who are doing some really awesome moves. They have not only amazing quick catch sequences, but they are also 
really developing their delay-based game. And I'm excited to see the progress they made, especially as kids, right? Because like kids learn so much faster than we learn. And the difference between being 12 versus 11 is, you know, like more than 10% of your life. So a year passing, (laughs) a year passing for them is a really big deal. So I think we're going to see some great stuff from them. And I, and I like how a lot of the juniors, but especially the Swiss juniors figure out how to put in multiple combos in their 10 second window. So if you've never seen the IFTC before, before it was called the tiny room, it is a battle format where you have, is it 10 seconds, Ryan? 10 seconds. You have 10 seconds to do the best freestyle you can. And a lot of people, especially in the pro division, will do one really awesome combination. But especially in the junior division and in the challenger division, where it's a little bit harder for less experienced freestylers to put together a 10 second combo, it's common to see them put together multiple combos. And I think the Swiss are the best at this because they'll put in eight or nine catches into their 10 second window. And they're really strategic about it. They'll have different catches. And then they'll usually have at least the better players like Joya, like one kind of traditional freestyle combo at the end to just show that they have that skill. Yeah, that's it. So what do you remember about Emma though? Because she's a little bit different, I think. Yeah, the one, okay, we'll talk about this later, but I actually don't have time to watch any of the freestyle. I have to watch it afterwards. So I'm Mm. like watching the recordings, but she's very consistent. Like she went 2-0 in the three-way final last year. So this shows like she catches every opportunity she has. And I think she has incredible form, right? I mean, she's really extended. Like even though she's not going to have the deepest move base as a very new player and a very young player, every move she does, if you just took a picture of it, you would say, oh, that's a pro player. Just there's nothing really that you can complain about with her form. It's spot on. Yep. Awesome. Also excited about Dinan, who was just a big hit last time. He's a Nigerian player. And he just has so much energy when he plays. And I think he really fired people up last time. So excited to see him. All cool. Right. So should we check out the challenger division? Tell me yeah, what you see here. The first thing I noticed is Tim Rohrer is now playing in the challenger division. So who's Tim? So he was competing in the juniors last year and made it to the finals. But this year, he's still playing with on the <laughs> second day. You know, I think there's a couple of juniors, maybe. I know that Timo Zimmerman, I I think Timo was in the junior division at some point, but he's now in the challenger division. And I remember him being really spectacular, whatever division he played in. So I'm definitely excited to see him. But let's talk about kind of the bigger name players here. So we have, and I'm going to butcher so many names. I'm so sorry to everybody whose name I don't quite get right, but we have Jamu from Nigeria, who's competed probably in every tiny room. Do you think that's right? I think so, yeah. So it's going to be great to have him back. Karsik Shai, that's a really special one because he doesn't get to compete in the traditional freestyle tournaments because I I can't see these flags are so small. I'm also not a great flag reader, but I know he's somewhere like either in China or near China. Um, and he's really worked a lot on his game. Laurent Isler from France, I think, was really good last time we saw. And I think he even might have had a a heartbreaking near miss to a further round. So it'll be exciting to see him. We already talked about Timo and Tim. The two Tims, all of our Tim Juniors are back. And then we also have like Angie. I think she's going to be great. I don't know. This is a pretty exciting slate here. 
Anyone who jumps out to you as a favorite? Oh, in Challenger. I haven't really looked. It's so hard. I think there's a lot more variance in Challenger and Juniors, right? Like, I think when you're a lower skilled player or a newer player, there's just a lot more highs and lows. Do you think that's right? I think that's right. I'm looking for who do I think will catch the most consistently. Yeah, I was about to say something similar. Like consistency is really king at these levels, right? It's probably true mostly every level, but you, I think basically any player here can beat any other player in any battle because it just comes down to hitting your move and it can really go any which way. Yeah, I think I'm, I might be rooting for Karsik this year. He, he needs to go on a run. I think that would be awesome. I definitely really like to see the players who, for geographical and economic reasons, don't get to go to all the events that we get to go to, do or have really great runs at these events. Like This is their chance to show the freestyle world what they're all about, and it's really exciting to see them go far. Yeah. Any other standouts for you? I don't know. I'm kind of interested in Laurent from France. I just remember... He kind of surprised me. Like, there's a lot of players that even you and I aren't that familiar with. And when he came out last time, he just had a really cool thing going with him. And I'm excited to see what he what he does and where he gets. All right. Well, everyone can find out and see it live on Saturday and Sunday. Awesome. Okay. Should we move on to the production side? Let's do it. Okay. So the first thing I wanted to say is, I never, I don't say this enough, but what you and Daniel do for announcing is incredible. Like you and Daniel make it look easy, but announcing is not easy at all. There's like so many things you have to ingest. Like you have to like watch all the freestyle and you have to like have all this background knowledge and you have to process it and say it in like such an enthusiastic and interesting way. It's like rare that we have two, I think, people that can do it and that you can feed off of each other. Like that, I think it's underappreciated. I just wanted to call it out. Well, it's super nice of you to say that. And it's kind of interesting because Jane and I have gotten a lot of really good feedback from the tiny room. And I've talked before about the bubble effect of like, you know, people aren't going to write us and be like, hey, you guys were pretty bad. Like you're <laughs> generally only going to get good feedback. But I still feel like you can kind of tell like just by the intensity of the feedback you get and how much that people did seem to really like it. But I think at least for me, and I'm, I'm sure Daniel would agree is I feel like we both think it could be so much better and that, like you said, it just is really hard and there's not a lot of opportunities to practice it and like figure out how to get better at it. And so there's still a lot of learning we need to do. And it's hard enough from what I understand to do a traditional sports-like broadcast, like a baseball or football. Like that's, there's a reason the people who do that get paid millions of dollars, but at least what they're doing is right in front of them and like has rules and you kind of know what to expect, but it's really hard. And this kind of goes to what you do in all this. It's really hard to run an event with people from all over the world, logging into zoom. And after the pandemic, we all know how tricky teleconferencing can be (laughs) and getting everyone on schedule and people speak different languages and bandwidth issues, like all the things that go wrong when we do the event, it's actually amazing how well it goes, but it definitely makes it really hard to commentate because while you're trying to do the commentating, you're so focused on, is everything working? Like, is everything happening the way it's supposed to happen? Is this the right person? I mean, it doesn't happen often, but even things like Dana and I will for, will forget how many battles there's been and who has how many points like i think at least once or twice daniel just announced a winner and i was like whoa whoa, whoa, hold on we got a whole nother battle left and we're also sensitive to the fact that 
it's really important to a lot of the people who compete how it goes. Like it really matters to them. So we don't want to make mistakes like that because we understand what it would feel like if you're a brand new junior and Daniel or I get your name wrong or like don't realize that you had won the first battle and we forgot. So it's if there's definitely a lot of pressure and I'm honestly thankful that I have Daniel because I think Daniel does the hardest part, which is the energy part and keeping it exciting and keeping it going, even when the freestyle isn't always exciting or good. And I get the easy part where I just get to be like, well, like that Fleming guidance was very well executed or whatever nonsense that I say. But I do appreciate the kind words. I appreciate all the nice feedback we got. But I do think there's a lot of room for improvement. And I'm really excited about this becoming a big chapter in like my freestyle journey. I think as I want to pivot out of competing, I would love to do more in the production side of things to present freestyle in a really cool way. And I think commentary is a big part of that. Because like one thing we've talked a lot about that I don't think we've talked about the podcast is how in our obsession with Dota, commentary is what makes it work. Like almost any sport, esport, art, whatever is really entertaining if you have the right commentary, right? Yeah. I always say it's the human connection. It matters like as much as whatever else there is. Yeah, and it's not just that the commentators themselves are entertaining. It's also they provide the context to make the event meaningful. So one thing that I think is hard when we have freestyle tournaments that do get a little bit of an audience just because of where they are, like there'd be a lot of foot traffic and people will stop to watch, is for the people who are stopping to watch, they have no idea what the storylines are. So what we need to do a better job of is if you turn on freestyle programming within the first five minutes, you need to know the main storylines that are coming up. It's like, I think about this a lot when you watch the Olympics. So the Olympics is every four years or two years, winter or summer. And most people don't know anything about these sports, right? We don't watch curling all the time. <laughs> we don't watch half pipe all the time. But whenever I turn in the Olympics, within 30 seconds, I'm going to know who's about to come on, where, what their status is in the sport. Are they an <laughs> underdog? Are they a favorite? What kind of moves are they going to try to pull off? And having that context makes me riveted. It doesn't take very long at all to be like, oh, I want this person to win. Or, oh, can you believe the story behind this? It's like, okay, I've only known about this person for five minutes, but I'm already <laughs> totally invested in what their story is. So story is everything. And commentary is meant to bring that out, I think. But it's still hard for us because we don't have the time or resources to figure out who all these people are and what their stories are. And I think because we've been doing it more, we've been starting to create those stories of now we do have a sense that Joya and Emma are going to be two co-favorites that are battling out in the junior division. And that's a storyline that we can follow, which, by the way, we didn't have at the beginning because we had no idea who Joya or Emma was. And we had to kind of make up the stories in real time. But I think we're going to get better at it. I think when people like you, me and Daniel are a little bit more out of competition and are focused on production, we'll be able to make bigger efforts to put together the narrative for our tournaments, whether they're these virtual tournaments or in-person tournaments to get people really invested in what's happening. Yeah. I was going to say there are tiers of production. And I think in the tier we are, we're like pretty close to the top. Like, I don't know if like when I watch back the stream, it's really good. And to improve it, to get to the next tier, I think requires like something like we don't have enough time to do that. And I'm, you always say like afterwards, oh, there's so much we can improve. But 
the product is really good where it's at right now. Well, one thing I th- I thought about a lot, and I'm almost always embarrassed to say it because it reveals an unfortunate aspect of freestyle, which is that what the Freestyle Players Association or just the freestyle community in general does every year with the resources that we have is absolutely incredible. If you told a production company that does real sporting events, football, baseball, whatever, what we accomplish with basically no money and a couple of volunteers, I think it's really awesome. I mean, and for this, this virtual tournament, it is 90% what you are doing. Because when we first thought about it, it seemed impossible. How on earth are we going to coordinate all of these people around the world to join a Zoom call and turn it into a tournament that's cohesive, that goes from battle to battle, but it somehow works. You do all the back end stuff. It's super challenging. Daniel too, of course. I know he's like writing people frantically <laughs> while I'm like making my color commentary. And it's so hard to pull off. And I do kind of agree with what you said that I think to reach the next level would cost 10 or 100 times more money and involve like <laughs> five to 15 more people participating as, you know, background staff. Yeah. I know, like you were talking about your nail making. I have the exact same adventure in the production side, like setting up OBS. Like at some point, I need to teach someone else how to do this so we can have a second tournament where we can just sit back and watch. Yeah. I mean, I know I've talked a little bit with Jake and Randy who used to do live streams that were really incredible for a lot of the world championship. And what made them so incredible is that there were multiple cameras, there was commentary, there was graphic design with all the team names and player rankings. It really had everything that you would expect from a professional production. And, you know, they would say the difference between a one camera production with one person commentating, which is maybe 60% or 70% as good. And that production, which is, you know, 50% better, but it's a thousand times harder to do. So like, that's what makes it so challenging. Like the, a, a small increment in quality is a huge cost in time, money, and manpower. I'm trying to find a new word for manpower because it's like gendered. I had this problem earlier today, like people powered, but then it sounds like <laughs> kind of goofy. So if someone has a good, better word for manpower, let me know. Um, one other thing I want to say about commentating though is I like it. And I think this podcast is kind of taking this role and I sound like some evil freestyle cabal, but it, it's nice to feel like you can kind of influence the sport by how you talk about it. So, and I know Daniel's talked to me about this too. It's nice to be able to express to people who might not hear it wherever they are. Like if you're a player learning by yourself in China, to be able to say in this public forum of like, hey, consecutivity is really important. And I value that you did that more than that really hard move that somebody else did. And I think I viewed it as sort of a teaching moment. It was like kind of like an opportunity. Like a lot of the battles are an opportunity to teach the freestyle community some value that I think is important. And obviously there might be things that are subjective that I'm wrong about, whatever, that's fine. I think lots of people can do this and should do this and please get out there and, and voice your opinions. But I also think just a lot of people don't know. I mean, I I think Dan and I have this big benefit because we learned how to play in New York City where there were all these freestylers that were kind of reaching the twilight of their freestyle careers. And so they didn't view us as competitors to them. They viewed us as people to mentor and they had decades and decades of freestyle experience and travel and learning. And so they 
and they were all frank new yorkers who just like to tell you what to do and so they just gave us a lot of ideas about freestyle culture and freestyle moves and some of them might not be perfect some of them might need to change but they definitely helped us as players and i think a lot of other people don't have that and it was nice to be able to kind of communicate those things by talking about the people who exemplified them and consecutivity is the easiest example like i know dan and i made a big push to talk about the value of consecutivity at the tiny room challenges and i think it worked because i think over over the few tiny rooms that we did, players became more consecutive. I, and maybe I imagined it, but I felt like players were taking what Daniel and I said and implementing it in their next tournament. So feeling like we could push the sport in that way was super cool. I for sure think that had an effect. And I think it was, it did. Like you said, everyone competing one year later in the juniors was 10% older. Yeah. <laughs> like I think that guidance is really important. And I think like I'm always supporting people giving their opinion like in a public space like that because you need you need like the first opinion out there to have the to start the discussion and like those discussions are important and so agreed there's so much out there that it's not written down anywhere and it's not accessible and so a lot of freestylers are just never going to learn certain things if we don't talk about them and put them out there and that's one of the cool things about being in a really small indie sport that a lot is unknown. It's not like baseball, where if you started playing baseball, they would say, here is exactly down to a millimeter where each one of your fingers needs to be to throw a slider. It's who knows what the right grip for a backhand is, but <laughs> this person uses this grip and they're really good. So maybe that one works. And we're kind of just guessing a little bit and we don't always know what's right or wrong. But the more you know, I think generally the better off you are. Like if you know there's five different nail types that people swear are the best nail types. At least you can try them all and decide what works for you <laughs> rather than living in a bubble where you're just wearing your button every day and you have no idea that there's dental <laughs> acrylic nails that you can be using. So, you know, just getting that information out there, I think is helpful. Yep. Awesome. Right, I have what a question else? for you. Okay, hit me. Do you watch the recording of the tiny rooms or IFTC afterwards? Absolutely not. I c it's like, would be like asking me to listen to myself singing. I cannot do it. Not only can I not do it, whenever I'm on YouTube watching freestyle videos and the suggested video is just a thumbnail from a tiny room, I have <laughs> to like clear my browser, go into private mode. Like I just can't even look at even the thumbnail of us doing it. I, it's And I know that's bad because normally with the growth mindset, I try really hard to expose myself to my flaws and try to learn from it but i really can't listen to the commentary it's it's so brutal i can't even listen to the podcast honestly and i always feel bad because you do the work of making sure it's ready to go and you always send it to me before it goes out and i never respond to you because the idea of listening to myself talk for two hours is unbearable i know i went back and watched it especially just preparing for this podcast and it's it's good like i did the thing where it was like tuning into the olympics like I was just going to watch it for content and yeah. make just to see like how it was. But like after two minutes, I was like, wait, I could just sit here and watch this because it's entertaining. Like it drew see, me in. Great. I think I get really distracted by like one of the things I do think I'm really bad at because I have no experience with it is just what to do with my body and my facial expressions because I'm not used to thinking about how it's perceived on the camera and it's not often in your life where there's a camera pointed at you for three hours and there's lots of almost kind of dead time where you wouldn't be aware that people can see your face and what it's doing 
And so I get really caught up in that. I get really caught up in how I use my hands. Like even right now, you can see if if the video isn't frozen, then I'm like, my hands are wildly gesticulating for some reason. And I'm trying to figure out how to calm that down. At some point, I just need to look up advice for sportscasters to see what they do. Because I don't want it to be distracting. Like it's not just that it's embarrassing for the reasons anyone would be embarrassed. Like it's sort of embarrassing to hear your own voice and embarrassing to see yourself on video. But I'm aware that the things that I'm aware that the things that embarrass me, probably most people don't notice, but I'm also aware that some of those things can be distracting. So I don't want to be distracting to the audience because I have some weird facial expression that everyone can see when they should be focused on the battle. So things like that, I, I really want to get better at. And I also think we're learning in real time how to talk about people in ways that are interesting, but not offensive. So like we've talked about this with the podcast, but the podcast is a little easier because we're talking about mostly pro players so far and we mostly have good things to say about them. And we're not talking about things that happen in real time where they might make, might make mistakes. So imagine you're talking about a six-year-old who just dropped the Frisbee six times and did nothing. It's hard to find a way to talk about that in a way that's uplifting and encouraging to the new player but doesn't turn into some sappy children's show that isn't interesting to the audience. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we're I, figuring it yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> and I, think we're, I think we're doing okay. I haven't heard anybody write us complaining that we made them cry. But No, you do a good job in those situations, yeah. Yeah, I think what I try to do, and I think it's helpful and useful for anyone struggling with the same thing, is I try to, I assume that who I'm talking about has self-awareness. It's like one thing I'm always really caught up in is, and I've kind of talked with you about this before, is I do not care if people are critical of me as long as they vaguely understand what I'm trying to say and aren't misunderstanding it, but also understand how I feel about it. So like if someone thinks I'm really arrogant, but I know that the thing I'm saying is really arrogant, then I'm cool. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that thing I said was arrogant and you should think I'm arrogant. But I wouldn't (laughs) want you to think, it it sounds so dumb, like I don't want you to think that I'm arrogant, but I don't realize it. You know what I mean? So, And the reason I apply this to players who are struggling is I say something like, I don't think they're happy with that. To be like, I know that they know that that wasn't a very good move. Because I think if you just say like, that move is terrible, that's pretty mean and dismissive. But if you say like, I think that player is not going to be happy with that, you're acknowledging that they have the skill and self-awareness to realize that they didn't perform very well. You think that makes, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a good way to do it. And I mean, it's true too, right? I mean, I, we, I think we talk about this in a lot of different ways. If it's always tough when you finish a freestyle round, that's whatever, whether it's good, kind of good, not very good. It's There's this weird game of people, like interacting with people after you play and their emotions, your emotions, their expectations and your expectations. So especially when you're a top player and you play poorly, and people come up to you and they don't really know how to react after you're around. So some people are like, great job. And it's kind of like hollow and empty and feels really weird. And I never know whether to be like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> or just be like, thank you. I appreciate it. And then I actually like personally, like Ed was really good at this. He'll come up and be like, oh, man, I'm sorry. Like, I know that wasn't the round you wanted. And that I appreciate because, you know, I know when it's not good. And as long as other people know that I know that, then I'm cool. But I always worry when people, I think it's mismatch of expectations. That's always what we talk about. Like if you think I think I did good and I know I didn't, that's when I think it gets awkward. 
anyways, that was that was some like self therapy right there. But (laughs) it, I do think about this when I'm trying to commentate to figure out how to say things in a way that are you know helpful to people. Yeah, commentating is hard. I always wonder like if we were to switch roles, like it seems like it would be impossible for me to do what you and Daniel do. Well, it would like, certainly be impossible for me to do what you would do. I'd be like, what's a computer? Like, what are, what are these buttons for? <laughs> but I just wonder, maybe my job is really easy. I'm just like, it just feels hard to me. I always, I, I will say it's surprising how often there is something to talk about. I was so worried that it would be impossible, but almost always something happens in the move that I find interesting. But if you can tell from this podcast, I digress all. Like I kind of find everything interesting and maybe that's, one of my strengths as a commentator and one of my weaknesses as a podcaster because I probably talk way too much about things that people don't find interesting. But I find everything interesting and I usually find something and someone's move that is interesting, whether it's like their strategy or how they put two moves together or if I could see what they were trying to do but how they reacted when it didn't go the way they wanted. Like There's almost always some storyline. Okay. I don't know if I would be able to find it. <laughs> also, I, th- I think Daniel, I, one thing I love about Daniel is every now and then he just calls the, he calls it off. Every now and then he'll be like, oh, okay, moving on. <laughs> like sometimes, <laughs> yeah. sometimes he won't even, he's smart and just like, let's just keep it moving. So I do appreciate how he does it. And I think, at least for me, I think Daniel would be fine without me, but I think I, I'm elevated by Daniel a lot. I think his approach really helps me be a better commentator and he's got a really unique skill in terms of how he performs. I mean, even in 2016 Worlds, which he ran with some other New Yorkers, he was an incredible MC, right? Just the way he announced Mm -hmm. the teams and kept things moving was perfect. And there's not a lot of people in our sport that do that and do that really well. And it's so valuable. I mean, everyone knows Louie in Italy I mean, she's one of the most famous people in the freestyle community because she's such a great announcer and she's added so much value to the freestyle sport. And so that's like an avenue we need to be promoting. If you can be a really good announcer, promoter, MC, DJ, that's very valuable to the sport. And we we need you and start producing awesome stuff. Yeah. I always say we need more human. We need more talking content. And I know uh, you and Edo started commentating over the the world streams which was great but like also something i couldn't listen to but but continue (laughs) like any like it you don't need a professional mic setup to start doing that like anyone can do it right now today just like load up a video talk over it record yourself and then upload it like i'll i'll watch like james will send me like the hardest movies ever done and, and i'll watch like half of it and then turn it off but if you commentate over just like bland freestyle jam i will watch all of them so true so true i can personally attest that i cannot get ryan to pay any attention to anything i do in freestyle but apparently if you talk over anything ryan watch it i probably will too right i mean i'll watch anything with good commentary yeah people people are interested in people that's my biggest takeaway (laughs) it's like it's like social narcissism people love people and their stories and if you can talk about people and their stories people will listen and people will watch. And we're still learning how to do a better job of that in freestyle, but that's what we need to do. All right. Did we talk about everything we needed to talk about? I think we talked about everything we needed to talk about. So check out the Indie Freestyle Disc Championship this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 1800 Central Europe. Check Check it out on Frisbee Guru. 
Twitch, Facebook, and go to ifdc.tv to do the battle pass. Please, please, please. That's my favorite part of the whole event. Check out the battle pass. Fill out your brackets. Try to beat me because I'm going to pick some real winners on my battle pass. And we'll, we'll see who comes out on top. So with that, we will talk to you next week. <laughs>